Hello and welcome. It's another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at the Books of the Year podcast. We are your friends. I, I love how we always introduce ourselves as your friends, as as opposed to just, you know, this podcast that appeared on your device and is now playing. People have chosen us. They have. Quite right. And we yes. have chosen them. Yes, they are the chosen ones. Uh well, I'm glad you're here, by the way. I'm glad I'm here, yes. Dr. Cat Day has been in touch. Oh, yes. You can get in touch with us, and we really, really like to hear from you. Uh, you can tweet us at Books of the Year, and you can email us at Books of the Year at yahoo.com. Uh-huh. Dr. Cat Day said, I've listened to the recent Books of the Year episodes, and I'm genuinely not sure whether Matt Williams' supposed new job isn't some kind of <laughs> elaborate joke. Well, there's always the chance, I mean, there's always the chance that, you know, I'm about to get a tap on the shoulder and someone say, actually, do you know what? This isn't working what, out. What, what is, what, what do you do? What do I do? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I'm head of communications for the Equestrian Federation. Oh, there okay. you go, you see. Do you have sugar lumps in your pocket? <laughs> yes. Always. Jory, just pleased to be here. <laughs> There's an obvious setup there. Right, okay. Uh, Kathy A uh, yes. tweeted to say, Dear Matt, I know you're busy at the BEF, but please find that, a way. Is that the British Electric Foundation? <laughs> the British that was like Heaven 17. <laughs> is that what you're doing? You're with so, Martin with Ware and Glenn Gregory, was it? Heaven 17? Gre- I, British no, Electric right. Foundation. I've never, never heard of that. Yes. The obli- is that a band? Yes, British Electric Foundation. No. I was part of the Heaven 17 Human League thing out of Sheffield. Wasn't it, so? What what was power thing? Wasn't that Duran Duran power they, station? Power nothing station, to do with nothing that. to do. With, but no. they were they must have been related in some way. Anyway, you were saying. Anyway, dear Matt, know you're busy at the BEF, but please find a way of joining Simon Mayer again on Books of the Year. Well, I'm here. I just listened to the Alex Michaelides, 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 you idiot podcast. Top quality as usual, of course. However, he really does sound a tad forlorn without you. Us too. I'm back now, Kathy. So everything's okay. Yeah, yeah back no, off, no, I'm, I'm back I'm off not, the mic. Not loud we didn't enough. have that problem when you're not here. <laughs> Me and Alex, we were fine. Yeah, as it actually, out. on the subject of Alex Michaelides, yes. uh, it's the number one book. I've, I've just been, I've just come back from Australia. It's the number one book in Australia. And while it? I was in Australia, it said it's the number one on the New York Times bestseller. Wow. So you know, it was fine. It's very good. I mean, I read it over Christmas. Nick know. Johnston loved the Silent Patient. Uh, by Alex Michaelides. I'd be surprised if I read a better thriller this year. Congratulations. Mm. And a great turn on Books of the Year. Yes. Uh, Yasmin Howcomely. That's a great name. That um, can't be yeah. a real name. Yasmin Howcomely? Hello. Hello. That's a, that must be a James <laughs> Bond name. Hello, who are you? I'm Yasmin Howcomely. <laughs> Howcomely. Oh, oh shaking all stirred. Um, Yasmin says, uh, a great interview. This is about the Alex... Michael Edes. Uh, Thanks, Simon, for drawing out Alex's creative process so well. I'm starting a creative writing course soon, and there was so much helpful chat in this, including an understanding that even the best work can be years in the making, honing and rewriting. Signed, Leone. Leone, who is not Yasmin Howcomely. Okay. <laughs> That's my favourite name of Leone. Leone. That's obviously the her name. I th- there must be... Maybe she trades as Yasmin Howcomely. Yasmin Howcomely. <laughs> <laughs> We're about to find out that that's a, some other name. It probably it? means something. Yeah, it you does probably look it up on yeah. Urban Dictionary. Yeah. Um, so this from number one author yeah. and previous star of Books of the Year podcast, Alex Michaelides, who writes, I want every writer out there struggling with rejection or battling a lack of self-belief to know that if you keep going, miracles happen. I nearly gave up writing The Silent Patient every single day. And now at the age of 41, I have a number one US bestseller, Please hashtag never give up. And then in capital letters and in bold, did you add this? 
Oh, we added it. It says, and I owe it all to Simon Mayer's books of the year. <laughs> and that's producer yeah. Ben's yeah. evil work. You no. just can't tell what the truth is anymore. Well, I think we're very much Alex would go along with the sentiment of that. Um, Charlie Connolly. Now, uh, I was here for Charlie Connolly. That was nice uh, of you to turn it up. It was good one. of me to, to turn up. And uh, we're talking about radio versus podcasting. Dinica Tenhover um, tweets to say, can't wait to read Last Train to Hilversum after listening to the latest Books of the Year podcast. And yes, the Dutch media is still divided as described. This is, there are five different kinds of Dutch media, including oh, yeah, free right. Protestant, regular Protestant, um, Catholic. Crazy out there Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely no fun at all Protestant. <laughs> Liberals. <laughs> Liberals, there was Liberals, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. Yeah. Uh, I Bagsy work on the Liberal station. <laughs> yes. yeah, uh, Neris, I love radio and podcasts. And listen back, uh, later radio casts, totally agree with the intimacy of it. Pretty sure I listen more than I watch telly these days. I also walk a lot for creaky back reasons. So it's great company for that. But hashtag, too many podcasts, not enough time. I find that as well. But, you know, there's a, I, I, I can always find the time. Uh, Amelia says, well, I loved the shared intimacy of radio and podcast ovs. Great interview, especially the glorious giggling at the end. And it made me buy the book. Good night. Oh, well, good night. Uh, good good night to you, Amelia. Cathy uh, A, uh, the pod- this podcast is so enjoyable. I've realised I listened to it on a loop three times during commutes today. Well, isn't that interesting? So this show actually gets yes. better the more times you listen yes, to it. Yes, please do. Or just download it more times or tell your friends. Uh, Steve Morton, let's not forget, radio also gives us delicious Danny Baker resignations, hashtag radio. Oh, yeah, yeah. He used to resign on a regular basis. Oh, right, of course, yes. Sophie Hill, um, on, the, on, on our adverts, oh, thank yeah. you, Books of the Year, for my free copy of The Economist. So far, I've not been able to wrestle it from my toddler. We love the animals on the back. There's a snake and a tiger. Really? That's why wow. else would you get it? Well, the economist is doing very well then. Get get them young. Uh, use the old snake and the tiger trick. Um, Hillary Hansel says, "Hey Simon and Matt, I'm, hey. ma- ha- I'm making an effort to engage with your sponsors. Already take the economist. Not so sure about Harry's razors, oh. as I'm sure I'll never achieve skin as smooth as your mum, Matt. Yes, quite right. Anyhow, I turn to your other sponsor, namely the former U.S. First Lady Michelle Obama, who's a massive fan of the podcast, uh, and I've just finished her autobiography, Becoming. What a great read, which will appeal to anyone who's a parents striving to do the best for their kids, a working mum juggling all her responsibilities, or indeed anyone just trying to be attuned to life's opportunities and do a good job. This is an effortless read, providing an apparently open and honest account of her road from Southside Chicago to the White House and beyond, warts and all, as well as a unique and intriguing insight into Obama's momentous political sojourn. I would highly recommend it. Thanks as always, guys, for the five-star Yes Matt five-star show, Hillary Hansel. Uh, thank you very much indeed. And just, I'll just do one more uh, communication. By the way, and just to say, it's books of the year at yahoo.com. Please email us. Uh, this is from uh, Shannon Kyle. Simon and Books of the Year team, I am a best-selling ghostwriter and I wanted to pitch the idea of an interview all about ghostwriting. It's a very little understood side to the publishing industry and I would love to reveal all yes. within reason. I've been a ghostwriter for 15 books, including four Sunday Times bestsellers and have covered genres from celebrity, misery memoir, social history and sports biography. If you'd like to know more, please do get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Many thanks. What an excellent idea. I'd love that. Shannon Kyle, journalist and ghostwriter. Well, we're going to well, we'll have a discussion about that. Well, let's. And then I vote yes. But I don't know, but are you are you going to be on the next? Well, here's hoping. It depends on whether I can 
extricate myself from horse and country TV, which almost didn't happen today. What, what I would really love is if you turned up in the studio on a horse. On a horse. You rode a horse. Wearing jodhpurs and a helmet, obviously, because you can't get on the horse without a helmet, kids. Don't forget that. And the proper thing around the nose. Uh, that's what I've also learned in my two months. Uh, thank you very much Steve for downloading if you've missed any of our other shows don't forget they're all there and you can download them for fun and for free and uh, we'll do another one for you very shortly thank you so much so on Books of the Year uh, we welcome another uh, top author this is Sam Bourne who really is of course Jonathan Friedland Uh, nice to see you again Jonathan how are you? I'm all right, thank you Simon despite everything going on in the world of the metropolitan media elite which you represent so well (laughs) how kind Sam Um, well, when we gather in our little uh, cabal, yes. there you go. Yeah, just obviously back from Davos and <laughs> taking time out before lunch and checkers. And I've actually never been to Davos. You know, I think my metropolitan media elite credentials That's are true. tarnished by that admission, but I never have. Uh, the book is to kill the truth. Matt is now going to describe the yes. cover. <clears throat> so it's all red. Uh, you will have seen this on your uh, bookshelves uh, because it catches the eye straight away, all red with a matchbook representing the um, stars and stripes that is um, slowly burning uh, on that screen and then picked out in white to kill the truth. Someone is rewriting history one death at a time, Sam Bourne in black. That's right. Uh, and also international best-selling oh, author. Oh, yes, international of... best-selling author of To Kill the President. In a previous you? life, I spoke yeah. to you uh, about that book too. Yeah. So, so much has happened in between. Oh. Let's go into that. Let's talk about that, yeah? Yeah. No. (laughs) I don't think so. No, I think we will. No. Um, I mean, it's worth mentioning to kill the president because in... You don't have to have read that book, but it is a sort of a continuation. So where are we at the end of President and before Truth? Just sort of get us up to speed. So in To Kill the President, she, Maggie Costello, the heroine of this book, is a White House troubleshooter who gets wind of a plot to assassinate this president. She's very torn about it because she doesn't like him and she thinks he represents a real danger to America and to the world. And so she sets about to thwart that plot. So she tries to do that. In this next book, we find her having sworn off politics, really. In To Kill the Truth, she's decided that she uh, wants to get out from the kind of swamp that is Washington politics. And she's trying to go back to university and study again. But she gets a call from the governor of Virginia, who's an old ally of hers, who says, look, something is going on and I need your help because a man is dead. Uh, He's a historian and I think he was a historian of the slave period in American history and I think this is the kind of death that is killing that is politically motivated and could be the first sign of a race war in our country and in our state of Virginia. And so Maggie is drawn in and, and bit by bit, it doesn't end there, historians, plural, are getting killed and then, along with historians, its libraries are being burnt down, hence the image on the cover. Digital archives being destroyed. Somebody is trying to destroy the historical record of the past. Um, introduce us to uh, one of the historians who, who we meet uh, in this book, William Keane. So William Keane is on, is in the middle of a trial, um, a libel trial. Uh, he's a sort of florid, white, southern gentleman and plays that role, wears the kind of courtly white suit and, uh, you know, has very flamboyantly good-mannered character. Uh, and he is in, in a trial because he has sued somebody who's called him a slavery denier uh, because they allege that his work denies the record of slavery in the United States. And he's saying, I can be no such thing because there was no slavery in the United States. And he's 
daring the other side to prove that slavery really happened, something which everybody in the room thinks will obviously happen. And they present him documents, and he looks at those documents and says, well, how do you know those aren't forgeries? And they present eyewitness testimony from the time, and he says, how do you know those people weren't making it up? And bit by bit, he tries to hack away at something, an event which had been until then fully accepted as part of the historical record. Is there, just before we move on with the with this plot, is there uh, an element of the David Irving trial there when he sued Deborah Lipstadt for calling him a Holocaust denier? Yes, there is. And that was very much in my mind, really, in that I covered the Irving trial for The Guardian. Um, it was in 2000, so nearly 20 years ago, and sat in court when Irving, like William Keane in this novel, defended himself, not defended, wrong word, because he was the one who brought the case, acted for himself. And in both cases, it's a libel trial. The the man who tries to play the sort of David against Goliath, the victim, is actually the person who brought the legal case. Uh, David Irving was a sort of florid English archetype in his pinstripe suit, and William Keane is in some ways the southern equivalent. But the main thing I was trying to evoke, I think, is the emotional reaction I had sitting in court emotional maybe is not quite the right physical reaction because I sat in court there when Irving would be presented with documents from the Nazi period describing in great detail the gas chambers the death camps and he would then interrogate witnesses and say but isn't the margin on the left hand side one millimeter to the left where really a German issue stationary would have had it one millimeter further over to the right therefore this document is probably a forgery and the typewriter ribbon would be the wrong caliber for this piece of paper you know and then they would present him in with, uh, the transcripts of interrogations of Nazi war criminals by British officers. And I was in court the day he said this. He goes, ah, but you remember, British officers, we had ways of making you talk. You know, that joking, trying to say that the confession of this German deputy com commandant at Auschwitz was forced out of him under duress. Eyewitnesses, Holocaust survivors, well, they, if they were obviously very upset by their time and they've made it up, and that's on a good day. On a bad day, um, Irving would say these people are extortionists trying to extort money out of the world's sympathy. And bit by bit, he was just hacking away at our account of the Holocaust. And there was one day I'd been in court watching him do this, and I left the courtroom and had this odd sort of physical seasick sort of feeling, like a kind of queasy feeling as I walked away and it was as if the ground was falling away from beneath my feet. It's a very strange thing. I don't normally react sort of physically to something like that. But I realised it was as the world Irving had made me live in for days and days and days was a world where there's no ground to stand on, where you have nothing firm or solid. You don't know if yesterday was Monday or Tuesday because how do you know? How can you prove it? And I sort of imagine what it would be like to live in this world that Irving was showing us. How would you know that Henry VIII had six wives? You know, How would you know when the Battle of Waterloo happened? But these big old parchments in Westminster Abbey, they could be forgeries and fakes. You know, If you live in a world where nothing is true, I think it's a very physically sickening feeling. And that was the feeling I had. And that was, in a way, I think now, in retrospect, that was the seed that has now produced this book. There are many things that I 
loved about your book, Jonathan. Um, but here's here's one, and it, it's something that I I see in some writers and and not in others. I'm a massive fan of um, uh, the TV writer Jimmy McGovern. Yeah. And what I think Jimmy McGovern can do that, and people will disagree with this, but but, but to my mind, that someone like Ken Loach can't is that Jimmy McGovern can write a very compelling argument by su- put by someone with whom he fundamentally disagrees. Now that brings me to a point in your book where you. Have have enough, there are a couple of characters uh, and there's, there's a tract written about why we should get rid of history. And here's the point. This is why I, I, I really liked it. Is as I'm reading that tract, with which, if you'd asked me beforehand, I would fundamentally disagree, it's put so eloquently that I think, actually... Yeah, I, 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 this is really rather seductive. Let's get rid of let's get rid of history because of these the, you know age old feuds, vengeance, blood spilt through generations. Therefore, you know all, all those kind of reasons. And I, I particularly want to talk to you. There, there is one example that that that, that tract brings forward that um, resonated with me because I used to live in Spain, and that is in Spain they had this policy of of forgetting. Of let's you know let's let's not talk about the Spanish Civil War and and the age of Franco because it affected so many people and divided so many people, then let's just forget it happened and move on. Compare that with Germany, where when you go to Germany, you're in, under no illusion about what happened in the 1930s and 1940s. Compare that with South Africa, where truth and reconciliation. And I, uh, that's that's something I, I, I want to sort of you to talk a little bit more about. Well, I'm really glad you picked up on that because that that's, uh, was important to me to do that. The so in other words, yeah, at first blush you think, well, obviously that's terrible, burning down libraries, and what could be more awful? And the FBI are on the case of this person, and then there's suddenly a document arrives which gets called the Book Burners Manifesto, a document which tries to set out as plausibly as you would why this person or people are burning down all the libraries and destroying books and archives. And that's the argument they make. And it's an argument which, as I say, at first blush, you'd have no sympathy with. But you realise there is something serious about it. I was quite moved, not moved, but provoked by a book uh, by a journalist actually called David Reef called In Praise of Forgetting, which he covered the Bosnia War in the 90s. And in Bosnia, there would be... You know, the whole thing kicked off, actually, when Slobodan Milosevic, who was the big rising star in Serbia, it was still Yugoslavia then, in 1989, went to a town called Kosovo Polje, where there'd been a big battle in 1389. So it was the 600th anniversary. And he just made this speech that stirred up hatreds that were literally six centuries old and and a sort of resentment and bitterness and said constantly, you know, they did this to us, not to the people, our ancestors 600 years ago, but to us. And out of that came a war and people ended up dead. And I think that was what really influenced David Reef, the idea that this notion of collective memory, I'm avenging something your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather did to my great-great-great-great, you know, that's madness. And if history gets distorted as memory, a kind of fake memory like that, I do see that danger. That said, I think forgetting is... It, is, it opens up a whole lot of other dangers. And that's this, you're right, it's called the Pact of Oblivado, I think mm. it was sort of oblivion in, in, in the Spanish Civil War. I can see why for one generation that was necessary, while the actual perpetrators and survivors are still alive. But long term, I don't think you can do that. I think you actually have to have the facts out there. And that's why it's so interesting, the contrast you draw, because I think Germany's been exemplary in this. They have forced themselves to remember what happened, to look at the detail, to stare it, dead in the eye and it's the countries that haven't done that austria poland all the countries that have told them written a story in which they're only the victims rather than partially or some of the people involved 
I don't know enough about how Japan's done it. From what, from you know, I don't know enough. But in the in the European case, I think Germany really stands out um, for forcing itself to come to terms with it. And the result is, I think, almost on a sort of mental health level, collectively, you feel that's a healthier society. But I do think it's a real argument. And you know, one of the characters in the book does quote this line, which uh, which has been said a few times, which is, you know, we need to put up a, a monument to amnesia and forget where we put it. <laughs> you know, that this idea of, of sort of memory and um, and the past can become this terrible burden. And you can, there are societies where people are drowning in it, you know. A number of years ago, Robert Key wrote a history of Ireland. And I think it was a documentary series that went with it as well. And he... He, he makes a point in there, a sort of tangential point to the one you guys are making, is that he said it's not as though in the rest of the world they've worked out how to reconcile a Catholic and a Protestant. It's just that no one cares in the rest of the world. But in Ireland, they do care. Mm. And they haven't forgotten. Yeah. And they haven't moved on. This was written in the 70s or 80s, so maybe it's less true now. No, no, I think uh, we're sort of witnessing it, actually, Ireland, trying to sort of grapple with all this. One thing that happened in this book, which is, it's, it's odd because I hadn't planned it this way. So Maggie Costello is Irish. She's an Irish, you know, she's an Irish uh, citizen who has made a career in the United States. And so she, but her perspective is still that. Her ex-boyfriend, who people have read uh, earlier Sambor novels, because Maggie Costello has now been in four of them, will know that she had this Israeli boyfriend called Uri. So the pair of them, one from Israel, one from Ireland, are both from societies absolutely steeped in this thing of society, of memories and history and folk tradition. And so they have an argument, which it's funny because, you know, I think it could have looked quite contrived if you'd planned it that way, but they are they are already the Israeli and, Amer and Irish. It just happens to be that way. And they have these two perspectives. Um, and so that's what, I, what, what your reaction to it is what I was aiming for. Because somebody said, you know, in a play, you want everybody to be right. And that's how it should work. That when you're listening to the character, you think, yeah, I agree with them. Mm. And then another character talks and says, oh, God, I agree with them. And so that's what I was trying for with this. But, you know, because it is mainly a sort of hunt and it's a thriller and you're meant to find who is this book burner. But en route, the, some of the characters do sort of argue about some of these questions. Robert Harris is another author who can do that really yeah. well. You know, yeah. put the opposite opinion to you, what you know is his. And you can think, oh, wow, that's... Yeah, quite yeah, yeah. quite yeah. compelling. Uh, we're talking to Jonathan Friedland. The book is To Kill the Truth. We'll do more in just a second. To Kill the Truth, Sam Bourne, a.k.a. Jonathan Friedland, is here. Um, there is a chapter in the book which feels like the centrepiece, uh, Jonathan, which is a conversation between uh, Maggie and Crawford McNamara, who's his character we haven't uh, mentioned yet, but he's clearly Steve Bannon. Because he's well, I think he's because he's <laughs> he's the kind of political operator he was in at the White House, and he's bare, he wears shorts and he's barefoot. Unless it's Steve Hilton, anyway, <clears throat> I don't think it's it's him. But anyway, they have this multiple influences. They have they have this conversation about facts, basically, in which Crawford McNamara, who's obviously an odious creep, uh, he basically argues that facts and science are elitist, and that. And and you you have this phrase about the truth being weak, and I found that quite scary because in fact you can read this chapter almost in isolation. You don't even need to know what anything else is going on, because sometimes you think that's true actually, and and the fact that uh, and the fact that something is true doesn't matter anymore because someone else will say, well, I don't accept that that's true because I've got a different truth. 
This is the big shift about where we are now, because a lot of people have said about this post-truth thing, and that, oh, you know, people have always lied. What's new about this? You know, and they've pushed back against the idea that there is some sort of post-truth era that we're in. I think there is something different. And, you know, at the political level, Trump and Putin, there's something about the fact they, you know, politicians have always lied. But even the politicians who lied in the past did have regard to the line between truth and lies. So I, my, the example I always think of is Bill Clinton and during the Monica Lewinsky affair, when he said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. A tortured formulation because he had in his head a technical def definition by which he was on the right side of the line between truth and lies. So he was trying to stay in the zone marked truth. And Richard Nixon's tortured answers on Watergate so that technically it was just... Then along comes Donald Trump, who just says something egregiously untrue. He's not thinking about some line. There's no tortured language. You know, when there was that policy of separating migrant children from their parents at the board, he said, that's a Democrat policy. They're the ones who've done it. No, it wasn't. You signed the order yourself. Democrats had nothing to do with it. He didn't mind. And that's the first level that's new. But the second level that's new about our time is this thing about even science, even you know, rigorously researched things can just be put aside. That is something different. It's much worse in the American context than here, where you know how, for example, the New York Times will do a whole investigation, chapter and verse on Trump tax dodging or whatever, and people on the right will just go, well, that's the New York Times. You can't believe a word of it because they don't like Trump. So they just dismiss it. That has extended beyond just the political sphere into science. So they will say, um, you know, there'll be research that says just to poke this hole in its nest, say about MMR and autism, and they'll go, yeah, but academics are the left. Universities are all in control of the left, so therefore we don't have to listen to them either. And this, and people who've written about this and are really following it, say this is what's new. You've got 35% of the country in the United States who have ta taken themselves outside the normal sort of, not just institutions, but kind of universe of facts and evidence and truth. And we've never had that as a society before, where even when you do prove it, you actually have the documents, which is what I think you were saying. Even if you've got the truth there, you, there will be people who just go, I don't believe it. I don't want to believe it. And then suddenly, what do you do then? So is, is that... That's is the that, wheezy feeling. That's the seasick feeling. Correct. I mean, and, and that is going to be... That's going to be looked back on as the greatest achievement was sowing doubt, is creating confusion about things that should be un incontrovertible. Yeah. So it's the same It's the same method that the tobacco companies used about lung cancer. It's the same method that uh, fossil fuel companies have used about uh, climate change. It's let's sow some confusion so that bluntly, people become a little bit easier to control. If you're not sure of what the facts are, then you're then someone telling you that expert over there is lying to you because of the vested interest in the left or whatever. It, 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 that is going to be looked back on in history as an, in, as an amazing achievement by one set of people to be able to control vast swathes of others. Yeah, I think it's chilling, that prospect, and I think that is what's happening. And I think you're... The mention you give to tobacco industry and then now fossil fuels, you know, and there was, I think it was somebody in Philip Morris who said about tobacco industry, our product is doubt, exactly as you've said. In other words, you're not trying to persuade people that smoking doesn't have a link to cancer. You can't, that's too big an ask. All you want is for people to be confused and doubtful. And similarly about climate change, 
um, you want people just to say, oh, the science is confused or the science is uncertain. Well, you, That's you, good you, enough. You make, the, you make the point in that, in, <clears throat> in that chapter, there's a reference to the president who says, no one really knows. Yeah. And I hadn't, I mean, I know we're not talking about Trump, but it never really occurred to me that actually he does say that. No one really knows about climate change. Says it no, all the time. Nobody really knows. And actually you go, yes, we do. Excuse yeah. me, yes, yeah. we do. But that actually doesn't count anymore. No, it's one of his favourite formulations that nobody knows what happened, you know, in, uh, and Putin does the same, incidentally, with the, you know, Malaysia Airways jet is shot down over Ukraine. RT, Russia Today, his TV channel, it didn't just put out a, a denial. They put out every wild conspiracy theory they could so that at the end, you're confused and you just say, nobody really knows how what took that plane down. Uh, you know, one of the things that Russia Today broadcast was the theory that the plane was already full of corpses. And that's how come there were lots of dead bodies. And apparently that was a plot line from Sherlock, right? So they know it's ridiculous. And remember the thing with the Skripal case when they were saying, you know, they're there to see Salisbury and they're almost smirking. It's all part of it. We know we're not telling you, but we just want to create this fog. And that is some part of our world, I think. Now. Specifically on the research that you did for this book, because obviously a lot of it is just intuitive and, and is part and parcel of your uh, journalistic career. But did you have to do some interesting research into electronic surveillance and computers and bugging and hackers and systems because that's quite scary, you know, mm. because I would imagine that took you into areas that you might not have researched before. Correct. That's completely right. I mean, one thing I really had to research was fire um, because there are fires in this book and the uh, li great libraries are, are, are burning down. And I wanted to know... How does that work? What are, you know, how to secure a building against that? How could you get around that? And I spoke at great length to fire prevention people who said, you know, at, at one point they said, look, there's something you'll need to change here because you've, if, if there's a risk your book could tell people how to burn buildings down. So, you know, you need to tweak this a bit because you can't make it like a manual. Um, but other than that, there was that. And then, yeah, absolutely about technology. This is something that, you, you know, you have to research it because it's changing all the time and somebody like me wouldn't know about it. But what's happening with art... This is the other threat to truth, by the way. is isn't just that you'll destroy records and burn down libraries and all that, but you'll flood the market with fake truth. And so Maggie herself, at some point, I don't want to give away too much, but, you know, there appears to be suddenly a porn video with her in it. And she knows she's never been in a sex tape. How's this come about? And it turns out that really, not me making this up, there is this deep fake technology where you can, with tremendous sophistication, impose one person's face on the body of someone else. Now, so far that's been used to create sort of fake celebrity sex tapes. But there's no reason why you couldn't start creating a fake historical record. And, um, you know, there was a story in the papers a couple of years ago that the scientists had put together the voice of John F. Kennedy delivering the speech in Dallas he was meant to give the day he was assassinated because they already had the text and they just used bits of his voice, they call them phones, like half syllables by half syllable, to stitch together. Now, you know, people who've been in radio a long time know you could always do it terribly, but mm -hmm. it would sound rubbish. But now you can do it in such a way that it, it's getting better and better to the point where what's to stop, stop somebody creating a tape of Obama, say, saying, you know, I never really was born in America and I'm mm. secretly a you know, Marxist who's plotting the destruction of America. How would you know that wasn't true? And that's in the present, but how, what about people creating a fake historical record? The technology is now there to do that. And I'm the, that's, I'm, you know, I'm, I was as chilled writing it as, mm. you know, you say you were reading it because I think that is chilling. So here's the, here's the final question then. It's the most difficult question. 
But it's the, what is the question that I need to know the answer. And in fact, listeners need to know the answer to this. Are you, Jonathan Friedland, an optimist? I am an optimist, actually. And if so, why? <laughs> why? Um, you know that thing about um, pessimism of the intellect, but optimism of the will kind of idea that I think analytically it does feel as if everything's terrible uh, and everything going in the wrong direction. I tell you the two, there's a couple of things that make me optimistic. The first one is uh, you know that I do a radio program called The Long View. And um, it's on Radio Four. On Radio Four, and there we take things that are going on now and look for the past precedent of them. And there's something oddly comforting about pretty well everything we've been through. There's an earlier version, and people were terrified of it at the time. They thought it was the end of the world, and they came through it. So there's, I get some kind of comfort from that that we have been round most blocks before. Have we been around this one? It feels like this one's come. I know, and well, that's that's the pessimism bit but I mean at the time most people do think this is absolutely unprecedented and you get people in you know the 11th century thinking well that's it you know there's that there was an Anglo-Saxon exhibition about the Anglo-Saxons at the British Library that just stopped recently and there was a writer, a writer in the year 560 who titled his book The Ruin of Britain right that's it it's all <laughs> over you know we never the, the 7th century is we're never going to see the 7th century this is just and i found in a way there's a kind of comfort there and then the second thing is um that you know for all of these stories there are people of just exceptional sort of resilience who are doing very good things and you just sort of cling to them really um and we can all think of examples of people plugging away and doing good things but i agree the overall trend line is not okay hopeful. so this is kind of half-hearted optimism <laughs> which if you dig a little bit turns out to be <laughs> not that optimistic all, at all, all gone to uh sam at uh, to kill the truth jonathan friedland thank you very much indeed for joining thank us. you it's been a pleasure Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.